0: So today, I would like to look at a question that seems pretty settled in the Christian world, but is it? I believe this to be an important question because the answer each of us might give indicates how we see Christ. I have titled this lesson, The Right Answer to the Wrong Question. I kind of had argued with myself back and forth about what the title would be, so I subtitled it. We see Jesus. And we have a small group here, but I believe it's a dedicated group, and we attend here, some of us driving many miles and passing many churches on our way because we believe strongly in the message, the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. We do, we do not get off into what a war in the Middle East might be foretelling how many people did we save this last week? How many are... Um, anyway, anything that would distract us. There's so many things out there that could distract. But no, we come here to hear about Christ and what He has accomplished for His people and how that affects all of our lives clear into eternity. We come here because we want to hear about how Christ as one of the Godhead in eternity, the three in one, was chosen to come down to earth as a man to redeem all those that God the Father had set aside from before the foundation of the world, before the beginning of time, identified in Scripture as the elect, the chosen children of God. Christ Himself says this in John chapter 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, But to do the will of the Father who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. But in religion today, there seems to be some confusion as to how this was accomplished. Now, we all, I believe, we all know that Jesus alone accomplished his this assignment. But there are those that throw it all into question, preaching Jesus did not accomplish this on his own. He did what he could do, and the rest is now up to you. So we do see a Savior who accomplished it all. Or do we a Savior who accomplished only some of it? Well, I again believe that this is one of the many reasons we drive by those many churches to get here because we believe that scripture teaches without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus paid it all that he did it all and he as the captain of our salvation left nothing up to man because there was nothing we could do or would do he was sent to satisfy the debt and according to Paul in Titus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, to, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He gave himself for us in Him we have redemption through His blood. This is what we are told over and over again in Scripture. I could read verses like this until the hour was over and we would not exhaust them all. But the opposite is what most Sunday school teachers will teach, what preachers will preach, seminary professors will teach. They teach a doctrine of free will and that man has the deciding role in salvation. Those teachings will lead to those seeking answers to ask a question, something like this, what do I need to do to be saved? Well, that is the wrong question, which led me to my title. To answer that question in the way that it's offered, I might say something like this, well, I think the only answer to that question is found in Jude chapter 2. But as we all know, There is no such thing as Jude chapter 2. But likewise, there also is no answer to that question in God's plan of salvation when asked in that way. But if we tweak the question just a little bit toward ask this, what do I need to be saved? Drop the to-do and make it just read need. What do I need to be saved? <clears throat> what do I need to be saved? Scripture is pretty clear that anything we try to do just messes things up even worse. We had a pastor that one time that came to one of our early, early, early summer camps when we used to hold him up at um, Camp Cody there in Rock Creek Reservoir that used this little saying. He says, keep your head out of your belly button because inside... Us. There is nothing, nothing that we could do. In fact, scripture tells us that anything that we try to do pretty much messes things up even worse. Our self righteousness is nothing that God will accept. In fact, He despises it. But the revised question, there is an answer to that, and it will provide us with something that God does accept, even requires. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to 2nd Corinthians chapter 3. We'll start looking a little bit at the answers that we can come up with for that question. 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 and I'm going to pick up reading in verse 7. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory... So if the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory how much greater is the glory of that which lasts and we'll read verse 12 a little bit later there's a whole lot in those few verses there and I'm going to skimp over them because there's so much you could have several several lessons right out of that little passage but it's a fascinating passage and I do want to make a couple comments that are somewhat off the main track here but It speaks to the glory of the old ministry, the law, the covenant that brought, well, as it says, it was the ministry of death. Moses' face reflected the glory of the old ministry, and his face shone in such a way that the Israelites would have to turn their eyes away whenever he came into their presence. Moses would put a veil over his face while speaking with them until the shine would fade away. But in the end, Moses reveals to us that as glorious as that old ministry was, it was transitory, in other words, temporary. It would soon fade away and by necessity be replaced. And its glory would be seen as nothing when compared to the surpassing glory of the new ministry, one that is not transitory, but the new eternal ministry of Christ that will have replaced the old. The writer of Hebrews tells us that in fact the ministry has received as has received as, as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. That's in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. And then Moses goes on to say, if that which was transitory came with such glory, how much greater would the glory be in the one that is not transitory, but it is eternal. It is the glory of God the Father through His Son, Christ Jesus. It brings to mind for me a passage in Philippians chapter 2, "...do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation." then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. I heard a message once from a pastor up in the Portland area that claimed that in order to shine like the stars in the sky that this passage refers to, we must always have such pure thoughts in our minds no matter where we are, at work, at play. We must have pure minds, be constant in our good works. And he just went on and on, turning it into a whole works exercise but in reality we are like stars in the universe because we reflect we project the light of Christ that's in us just as Moses did nothing in in and of himself to produce that shine on his face as he was reflecting the glory of God and the former ministry we likewise do nothing of our own to create a light that shines but we do have Christ in us and in him, there is that light. Now, we look back at Second Corinthians 3 and verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. So why this hope, this boldness? It's because we see Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone we do have hope in him because he is our hope because of his willing sacrifice he has been crowned with glory and honor and his sacrifice we know brought life brought hope through eternal life in him and Hebrews 12 tells us therefore Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. It is he who is the source of that hope and that confidence. We once were blind, but now we see. We see Jesus, the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. What hope and confidence that gives us. Now we can say we know him as we have never, never known him before. And we see him as we have never seen him before. And the good news is Jesus enables us to see so many things that when we were blind, we would have never been able to see. And he enables us to know so many things that When we were lost, we would never have been able to know. But not only does He enable us, He teaches us and He guides us. In this lesson, we will be looking at just a few of the things that we are now made able to know and see in Christ. As we already mentioned, we are now able to see Christ in His surpassing glory. We see it in Him. We see it in His work. Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 1 and see how it speaks to us about this glory of Christ. John chapter 1. First, I'm going to read just verse 14. The Word became flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Given us, uh, that's just full of grace and truth, which gives us confidence and hope in everything that the Lord has promised. We now see that this newfound glory of the ministry that Moses spoke of and the writer of Hebrews helps connect the dots for us. And as we read down just a little farther in John chapter 1. We see him as the son of God himself. Verses 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side and has made him known. So as we continue to look at what we can see because of the work that Christ has done on our behalf, in John, we see that He is truly God Himself. In John 14, when Philip says, "Lord, show us the Father," Christ responds, "If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father." In John chapter 10, verse 30, He says, "I and the Father are one." So we see Him as Lord, as God, and as, and as Savior. He is also the son of God, and we see him as the perfectly obedient son. We see him as one who was made like us, suffered temptations like us, yet remained without sin. Hebrews 2.18 says this about his temptations. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And what greater help to brothers and sisters can there be than for one to reach down and deliver them from the grasp of sin and death? In Romans 5.8, we see Christ doing this for us. He has rescued his brothers and sisters from that grasp. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. Such great news. I heard a sermon from a pastor in Georgia one time that I hope maybe we'll all get to meet together sometime, but he said something that has really stuck with me. He said, it is impossible for you to understand just how good the good news is until you know how bad the bad news is. In Ezekiel 36, a very well-known passage that tells us a whole lot about ourselves and about how God goes about making us a new creation. We are told, among other things, that he will remove our old heart of stone and give us a new heart of flesh. He will sprinkle and cleanse us from all our impurities, and he will put a new spirit in us, a spirit of, of obedience. And there are other things that are said there. But then, after he tells us all these things that are good, he acquaints us with the bad news when he says, then we will remember all our evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your detestable ways. Now that's a jolt to who we thought we were. Now we know something about the bad news, and without him, we are forever lost and in need of a savior. We are truly a valley valley of dry bones. And while we wrestle with all that, when we deal with the knowledge of how evil and wicked our deeds truly are, we see the results of all the bad news. We see what happens to our Savior as as he's led up the hill of Calvary with a crown of thorns upon his head, then hung on the cross with nails through his palms and his feet, We see him hanging there in our stead for our sins, our guilt, persecuted, mocked, prodded, a sword pierced through his side, releasing a flood of blood and water, taking all the pain and agony that was meant for us, shedding his blood for us. But he did it all willingly, being obedient to the father even unto death. He cried out in agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then with his last breath he said, It is finished. Christ, the one who knew no sin, who had no sin in him, took upon himself our guilt, our punishment, faced God's wrath so that we would not have to. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How good the good news is as we see this one act canceled out all our bad news. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. From sinners to saints, how good the good news is. There's a hymn called His Robes for Mine, which i would never heard before, but I heard another preacher use it in one of his messages. It talks about this very moment and what it means. For the sake of time, I'll just read the first stanza, which goes like this. His robes for mine, oh, wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. Christ's righteousness was imputed to us at the same exact time as our sin and guilt was imputed to him. He then took that sin and guilt and buried it in the grave with him, canceling out all our sins and iniquities, all of them past, present, and future. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then, and then there's the third day. The third day when well, we are a- enabled to see the gospel fully fulfilled in him. How? Because on that day, the grave, the tomb, was found to be empty. When looking inside all that was there, was a bundle of grave clothes on a cold stone bed there was an angel there saying to those who came to visit the grave site why look you for the living among the dead he is not here he has risen wow that was such glorious news because the truth of the truth is this if when he died and was then buried if on the third day he had not risen, we would not have that Savior who was promised and whom all we believed was him. If you would like to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read look at verses 17 and 19 and follow along with what Paul says regarding the importance of this resurrection. pick up reading there in verse 17. It's hard to pick a place because this whole passage just deals about the resurrection of the dead and those who are denying it. And so Paul says, if there is no resurrection, what about this? So pick in verse 17. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sin. Then Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So as we look at that, is there any question as to why the two on the road to Emmaus held their heads down in sadness? The one they saw as their Messiah, their Redeemer, was dead all hope was vanquished they thought their faith had turned out to be useless futile they thought but what does paul exclaim when we read verse 20 verse 20 of the same chapter he reassures us in saying but now christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep the good news is yes he arose and for all those promised redemption, it is here. Now we see by the grace of God that we truly do serve a risen Savior. So now we see him risen and ascended into the heavens and seated at the right hand of the Father. Just as Hebrew 1 tells us, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. We go back to, clear, back to the beginning reading. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purifications for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven." So now how do we see Jesus? We see Him in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all His creation. We see him as our mediator and how he is ever living, making intercession for us. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? And that office of intercessory includes so many things. We can see Christ now as our advocate. That is part of his intercession for us. In 1 John, we hear this from the apostle. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Well, we all know that we do sin, and we all are in need of that constant advocate. As John says in chapter 1 of 1 John, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. As much as we wish it would not be, sin will be a constant with us until, by the grace of God, We are absent from the body and present with the Lord. Until then, we will always be in constant need of Christ as our advocate. Well, time is running out and there's so much more that we could look at here. But um, the more time for sure, the more time that we get to walk with Christ on this earth, the more we will grow in his grace and the knowledge of him. And we'll see even more than we do now. But we must wind things up. So I will say this. There is a right answer to that question of what do we need to be saved? In Acts 4.12, salvation we are told that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When you look at that, there is no, what must I do to be saved? There is no to-do there. There is no man's decisions or free will mentioned there. There is no raising of the hand, no walking down the aisle, no saying a sinner's prayer. There's no rules about church attendance, about man's baptism, about communion. Throw in there what you might, but it tells us plainly, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. What do we need to be saved? It's Christ. He's it. He's all there is. He's all we've got, but he's all we need. We are poor sinners and nothing at all, but Jesus Christ is our own all. So with a few minutes, actually, it's going a little quicker than I thought, but with the few minutes that are left, I would like to conclude with this. Earlier, I mentioned that we are a small group, but you know we're big enough because we are where God has us. Also, when we take into account all the people we we are privileged to have joined us on Zoom every Sunday and even more on Wednesday nights, you all come from several states and even foreign countries like Japan and yes, Ed, even Canada, and then there's sermon audio. When you look at the analytics, our message is getting out. We have downloads from all around the world and across the United States. Then I find it a real blessing when I think about all the preachers we've had at special meetings stand in this pulpit preaching the gospel of Christ. We've had one who spent many years as a missionary in Mexico, We've had one from the Caribbean. Lance Heller was just here from New Guinea. We also had a former pastor who spent 10 years as a missionary in the Amazon in Brazil with his family, who of course, my mother-in-law Adeline and my wife and her siblings. Then we can look at all the states that have been represented by speakers from places like Florida, West Virginia, North Carolina, Iowa, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, Michigan, California, and probably some that I've missed. It has been wonderful getting to know them all. And when you stop to think about it, what is the tie that binds us all? What is it that we all have in common that gives us such sweet fellowship? What is it that we need? It's Christ. He is truly all we need. So I thank you for your time, and we look forward to the 11 o'clock hour when Brother Michael will be up here bringing the, the next message, and I've got to remember to turn this off.